Welcome once again to season three of the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi podcast, Naturally Educated, our final episode of the season. I'm your host, Tim Elliott, and as ever, this season, Abdurrahman Al-Zabi is here too. How's it going, Nayar? Going great. Thank you very much. Hope you're doing well. Um, so, Tim, it's good to be back, of course. And today, as we always know, it's an extra special episode uh, in this series. As y'all know, we've been uh, we've been really championing sustainability in this series. And today, specifically, this is going to be uh, all about examining just how environmentally aware we really are. So has the message got through and just how much effort are we making to ensure a better world for our children? Exactly right, Abdurrahman. Today, it's the question of just how do we and how are we doing when it comes to mainstream environmental knowledge? So that it's kind of as simple as one, two, three. Mm. It's a tough one to answer. But I reckon we've got an expert who has some of the answers today. And I'm really looking forward to hearing from her all the way from India as well. Mm. I think, if I'm right, she's high up in the Himalayas, which wow. is kind of exciting. Before we get into the discussion, quick reminder, as ever, guys, we'd like you to make sure you're following us and getting in touch with us. So if you'd like to reach out, share any comments, if you have a story to share, let us know what you think. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, and LinkedIn at Environment Abu Dhabi, one word. You can also find us on our website or YouTube at Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. So please give us a like and hit subscribe wherever you find or listen to your podcasts. Now, about today's episode, the title is Expanding Environmental Knowledge to Previous, Current, and Future Generations. In other words, how do we continue to get the message through and to enforce or reinforce the message that we've got to do our bit to contribute? Of course, if we can, whether it's conserving water, reducing, reusing, and recycling, however small it is, um, it is worth it, right? So myself, honestly, when it comes to environmental education, I started with pursuing a master's in the environment field, sustainability, renewable algae, et cetera. Right before that, the first thought that I had, you know, how can we protect our environment? Is it necessary to recycle? I felt like just dumping the trash in, in one uh, bin didn't make sense, you know? Where is this trash going to go and end up? So for me, the process of, of started to when I reflected on my personal habits, uh, and that's what led me to do a lot of things in my life, but I want to hear it from you, Tim. How did you start your journey? I'll be honest with you. It's my children and they shout at me if I don't, <laughs> if I don't do things properly. <laughs> my wife. But then she shouts at me anyway. No, it, it's, it's honestly, it's years of, um, it, when I was a child, I grew up in Britain, obviously, and it was very much about litter at the time you you, you mm. would walk around and people would throw litter and my mother was very very hot on put that in the bin make mm. sure you put that in the bin put that in the right bin and she was always she was always that way and she comes from a generation a post-war generation where they didn't waste things mm. because of rationing during the second world war and into the 50s and maybe even the early 60s as well so she comes from that generation, and, and that's kind of ingrained in me. And it, it's something that still drives me mad. If I see somebody drop some litter or throw a bottle or something, it, it, it makes me mad. And it stuck with me. And, of course, you know, the, the, over the years, we more and more we think about recycling and reusing things and not 
you know, throwing things away, trying to make sure we put things in the right bin. So that it, it's kind of always been there. Hmm. But, you know, in the last, I guess it's about 20 years or so, it's really become important. And climate change is now front and center. Biodiversity loss is front and center. And sustainability is now a word I think that we all understand. Absolutely, Tim. This is tremendous. And the effort that is put into these topics now uh, is is emblematic of how much uh, work needs to be done and so on. I think... You know, education is very much key in making it a habit. And the environmental education field is our guest's area of expertise today, Abdurrahman. And I think there's going to be a lot to learn. She spent 15 years with the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. She knows her stuff. I think we need to get the expert involved. Absolutely. Let's do it. Gayatri Ragwa is an environmental education consultant at the UN Environment Programme. She's based in India. We've managed to track her down to the Himalayas where she lives and she's joining us from there. Welcome, Gayatri. I'm so pleased you could join us on Naturally Educated. Hi, Tim. It's always a pleasure to be talking, even if virtually, to my second home, which which is the UAE. India is my first home and UAE has been my second home for many, many years. Well, let's start there, actually, because you were in the UAE for some years. Uh, A little bird told me 27. So let's talk about your background and your experience here in the United Arab Emirates, just to kick off. Sure. I mean, I came to UAE in 1989. I don't even remember how old I was or maybe I was... 34 or somewhere in my early 30s. Now I'm 66. So I came somewhere in Mm -hmm. early 30s. And then when I came in, I came in 1989. And initially, I worked as a school teacher in one of the school. I had taken leave from my India uh, university job. I was a senior environment uh, lecturer here, geography lecturer, geography. I'm a student of geography. So I had come over there and I started teaching in school for 10 years. But my quest for environment education and my thirst for environment education, or should I say my obsession for environment education, then right from the beginning, I started looking out where can I find a place to sort of satisfy this thirst of mine. And then we started at that time, the uh, you know Emirates Environment Group was just Coming up, it was called Abu Dhabi Environment Group in Abu Dhabi and in uh, Dubai, it is called Emirates Environment Group. It started in Abu Dhabi, of course. So at that time, I volunteered and I became one of the members of the Abu Dhabi Environment Group. And that consisted of different nationalities and all people really connected to environment and raising uh, awareness and education towards environmental issues. So that's how I started. And I worked, I mean, I, I used to volunteer my time there. I used to do many things there. And I could not sit tight just teaching geography because geography to me is all about environment. So I had started the first eco club in the UAE. And that was in 1990. The first eco club that was started in 1990 in the UAE was in the school. I taught in Abu Dhabi Indian School. And that's where it started. 
And I used to conduct this, you know, inter-school environment awareness week and quiz competitions and many things. And I used to keep gathering all schools and asking them to come and join us uh, in this process. And while doing so, I came across the EAD, which is at that time used to be called as Environment Research Wildlife Development Agency. So sometimes I would, you know, we would participate. I would get my students to participate in, uh, you know, we had these uh, Shell Better Environment Awards. The Shell Company had constituted Shell Better Environment Awards. So we used to, many, many schools used to participate in it. And I used to participate in it and I used to win it every time. And when we used to win it, at that time, whenever I needed any expert guidance, I would turn to the then Environment Research Wildlife Development Agency, which is now known as EAD, Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. So uh, the experts used to come and then they looked at what we were doing, how we all were working together. And then with the, uh, we used to call this ERUDA, E-R-W-D-A, short form. So we used to say, hey, let's start something called as tadpoles, which is Teachers of Abu Dhabi for the Protection of Living Environment. We used to meet once a week and we used to plan out things that we can do within our schools and within the Abu Dhabi community that we can take it forward for environment education and awareness. It was then that I came into the notice of the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi, which is current name, and then they, in 2001, they sort of called me over. In fact, strangely, I never replied for it. They called me over because we used to have this tadpole and we used to do so many things together. So they called me over to say, because the environment education person who whom I respect greatly, uh, Terry Bailey, she was the one who started the environment education program at the ERWDA. And I used to work with her quite a bit. She was leading, and then the uh, ERWDA called me over and asked me, would you want to come and take up this job? And that's how my journey with the Environment Agency Abu Dhabi started. And I worked there for 15 beautiful years. I say it's beautiful because from we established environment education right from its basics. We started introducing programs. Before that, we used to conduct you know, these uh, desert ecology field trip programs where you used to take students and even young adults to the desert, stay with them for two, three days in the desert, uh, trap animals, do plant surveys, had a wonderful time. But then in 2001, we started expanding. We said, we need to go because ERWDA was wildlife oriented at that time. And then we started saying we are the competent agency. We became the competent authority with which we then had to look out for other issues such as waste, water, and other sustainability and environment-related issues. So from a focus on wildlife education or wildlife conservation, working with uh, working in the desert, working in the sea, conducting marine ecology trips, mangrove ecology trips, desert ecology trips, we started looking at uh, issues such as water, which is a prime issue in Abu Dhabi. As you all know, it's a desert country and waste and energy and all of those things started. And from then on, there was no looking back because we established these programs and then we got an opportunity in 2005 when EAD was declared as the competent authority. I mean, it it became the competent agency. 
So we started looking into more sustainability-related uh, issues and then designed what we what the world now knows as sustainable schools, sustainable campus, environmental Peloton, and many, many other programs, which still today runs in UAE. And I have, I'm so proud to have been a part of it. You know, I want to expand in a different direction, if you don't mind, specifically to focus on the work you do now at the United Nations Environment Program. Obviously, reading about you, you're one of those people who has um, her hand in a lot of fantastic initiatives and so on. So give us just a brief on what you're currently doing and what kinds of challenges you face on a daily basis. Okay, so uh, I, I, I started working with the uh, United Nations Environment Program as an environment education consultant in 2019. And uh, that, I mean, I was first tasked with running this initiative called the Tide Turner Plastic Challenge. This is a challenge, which is a global program. It runs in 40 countries. And uh, till now, we have reached to over 650,000 youth. This program sort of empowers youth, uh, you know, uh, gives leadership skills to the youth to tackle the issue of single-use plastic. And the, important, the challenge that I face is two ways. One is India is a big country. So having worked in UAE, um, you know, Having seen a lot of my initiatives take uh, uh, take action on ground and seeing it in India, I work from one corner of India, and this this particular program, the Titaner Challenge program, is across all India. I mean, out of the six hundred and fifty thousand youth in India alone, we've reached out to more than five hundred thousand. So I've got youth all over India, and I connect with them. But unfortunately, I have to connect with them virtually because I can't be traveling. It's almost like a half continent. So it's a large country, but it started as my in my my connection with the Titan Plastic Challenge, which runs till today, and it is one of the greatest flagship programs of UNEP India and also UNEP Education Department. And I also reach out to higher education establishments, work with them. We, we work on initiatives such as Race to Zero, of which I think some of the UAE universities have also joined, which asks the universities to commit to a carbon neutral future. And also something called as nature positive universities, where we look at how universities can impact nature in a more positive manner. So there are very many initiatives. So right now, of course, one thing that is really posing a big challenge is green jobs for youth, because youth no matter how much you do environment education, at the end of the day, the youth wants to know if I work so hard on environment education and do everything on environment education, what do I get in return? And they want to translate that in where they work. So we now work for green jobs for youth. These are all the challenges. India is just too big a country. And working for UNAP is a totally different ball game compared to Environment Agency Abu Dhabi which was restricted to one country. Here, even though I work in India, I'm called to give you know, suggestions or, or intervene in different other countries as well. So the canvas becomes just far too big. Gayatri, you've been in this business, if you like. You've been environmentally aware, clearly, for a lot longer than most people. And the, the, the episode that we're... The, the, the theme of this episode is really expanding environmental knowledge. Now, the title is to previous, current and future generations, but that's to all of us. I want to ask you this. Considering your background, everything that you know, with all the knowledge that you have, with all the initiatives that you uh, are working on, just how environmentally aware are we? 
really now? Are we getting better? And is the message really getting through? That's a very uh, tricky question. Mm. If you ask me, yes, the awareness has increased tremendously compared to what it was four decades back when I actually started environment education. Mm-hmm. It has definitely increased. But has the awareness turned into action? Well, that's a very debatable question because the awareness has increased multifold everywhere. But awareness has not necessarily translated in terms of action. If you know what I mean, in terms of behavior change, in terms of action on ground, uh, that is a very, very strong challenge for all environment educators all over the world. I mean, the thing is, we we all talk about it, don't we? And we all nod towards environmentalism. uh, And we all, I guess, most of us understand. But it's today's knowledge. How does that apply to the generations of the future? Just how much action is really being taken forward? That's the point, isn't it? If you take the future generation or even the youth now, they are restless now. They're restless, they're concerned, they have anxieties towards environmental crisis that's unfolding before us. That is why, that is where I would like to make a distinction between awareness, awareness, awareness all the time to action. Because we've been talking about, oh, switch off the lights. Uh, Oh, that is such a beautiful painting drawn on environment or, you know, the environmental issue. Moving from that, those are necessary, those were important. I don't mean to denigrate them in any way, but that was then. Now is the time when you the, the environmental crisis is unfolding before us. You've got the triple planetary crisis, which we keep talking about, which is your climate change, biodiversity loss and pollution. And what are the environment educators doing about it? Because it has to translate in terms of action. Uh, you know, environment education, like all educators everywhere in the world, uh, we, in fact, I remember one of my colleagues at BN, one of the environment educators said, uh, uh, environment educators are one of the lowly paid uh, people like any, any other educators. We are not from that technical uh, background that people say, oh, we're not scientists, we're not researchers, but we are educators, right? And environment education world over, the educators work a lot, but for them, for their effort to translate into action on ground, you need a systems change. That has to go together. So what's happening here is we are hurling towards an environmental crisis and our response and our actions are slow. It has to keep pace with whatever is happening. If it doesn't, it is to our own detriment. And that is what we don't seem to realize. We seem to be doing it we do, we, in some places we do very fine, but then we seem to be doing it rather slowly, in my opinion. You know, Gayatri, what you said there focuses more on the systems, um, on what people think and how people think, but not necessarily on education, right? Did I get that right? If not, what's your vision for environmental education in the future? How can people become more aware of the challenges that we're all facing? A, environment education has to be mainstreamed and it has to be in, in you know, that, you know, David or Professor David Orr, who's considered to be one of the fathers of environment education, said that all education is environment education. And whether how you teach is what it matters, whether you are a part 
of the environment, uh, a part of the environment, or you are apart from the environment. The spellings are the same, but apart and apart are very different. And that's what has happened. Uh, the education systems, uh, we have to understand that the education has to uh, integrate the environmental issues into every subject, into their operations, how the school run, what do they stand for, what policies do the schools have, how they connect with the environment. So basically, environment and sustainability has to permeate from one, from within you, to your school, to your community, to your city. It has to be a whole institutional kind of approach that you need to take. And only when you do that, then you can. And when we talk about the system change, it is not only the society that I'm talking of. For example, if I go and tell a teacher, you know what, you need to recycle, then they will say, great, I, I segregate my plastics, I segregate everything. So where do I send it to? The system should say, these are where the plastics are getting recycled and go send it there. Now, that is what I mean. And that's a case even in the country where I am working. Everybody is very aware. Everybody wants to do the right thing. But for them to do the right thing, other systems also should support. And should everything should work at tandem with each other. And I'm not saying people are not working. Everybody is working. But everybody is working at a different pace, if you understand. We all have to increase our space and collaboratively work together, only then we can address the issue. I just want to emphasize one thing, um, which is increasing the incentive, right? Uh, why would people change or do something different, even if they know this is beneficial for the environment, if there is no incentive? So does that factor into your thinking at all? Sure. In fact, it's a very interesting question that you asked. And uh, you know, when we did that Enviro Spelathon program, which is one of the greatest programs that we did in UAE, the first year when we did, we said, oh, the teachers are doing extra work to do this program. And this was uh, environmental literacy program that we undertook in schools. We said that teachers are doing extra programs. So when they complete, we should give them some incentive. So we gave them 500 dirhams at that point in time. And that was a lot of money. And after that, Next year onwards, they want money. They do not want to do it because they believe that that's the right thing to do. You can't carry things, so money cannot be the incentive. So what other things can be the incentive? Incentive should be that, you know what, if you're not going to do the right thing, the survival is at stake here. People have to get that into mind. I think most of us, we don't, respond till something strikes us personally. We can keep saying uh, the plastic pollution, XXX pollution increases the cancer. But if it doesn't happen to anybody close to you, you don't even open your eyes to it. You read it, you, you don't internalize it. And that's where, so what is it? So we need to have more behavioral nudges. So it's not only about incentive. Yes, for young people, the incentive should be because when they grow up, they learn about environment, they learn about doing the right thing, but then when they go to the workplace, they see that the workplace has yet not transformed. So they need to go towards the green jobs. You know, you're right. Incentive shouldn't just be monetary. Some incentives in the UAE, for instance, when it comes to composting or treating the waste that households produce, um, what they do is that they collect waste from houses 
And at the end of the month, they give a personal impact statement telling them, hey, you did one, two, three, and so on. Um, and you help the environment in this much uh, and so on and so forth. And to me, that's a great incentive for people to get a real feedback to say basically, you know what, I actually support it in my own little way. Would you say that's encouraging? Absolutely. You're spot on. And I can go even a further a little more. In Japan, in one of our trips from UAE, when we went to represent UAE there, we were taken to a city where the people were recycling. I mean, they were basically composting and they brought their compost and basically they could go to the marketplace and exchange the compost for vegetables. So when you grow, go to buy your weekly vegetables, they can get their compost and they get a bit of vegetable free depending on how much compost they got. So, you know, building that circular economy, we keep talking about circular economy. Our economy is not circular. We don't do that, right? Uh, people have to understand, oh, yes, I recycled. Oh, yes, I segregated. So from here, where does it go? And how does it then come back? They have to get that into the system. And so when they went and bought the vegetable back, they say, oh, great. This is my compost that helped to grow this vegetable. That's a great feeling. So what I'm trying to say is, yes, you need to build it. You're spot on, Abdurrahman. It is definitely incentive, but not monetary incentives, but even an incentive where people have a sense of ownership and feel they've contributed to something solid on ground and to the economy. That's a really smart point. You know, Gayatri, you said something earlier that really struck a chord with me, and it's something I've not heard. If you're not a part, you are a part from where this is. And we've been successful to, to a great extent, mainstreaming environmental knowledge. We're all kind of aware. We're getting the message. Um, but it is now about action. Let me just ask you this. How about the people who just don't believe there's a problem? How do you convince those entrenched in outdated beliefs? My father is very skeptical. For example, he's 80 years old. He's not sure about climate change. He thinks it's just weather for example. And it's very, very hard to convince him of the message. But I think there are a lot of people who are on the fence still. What do you say to people that think in that way? So there are two kinds of people who may be on the fence. Mm -hmm. One is, as I said, uh, you know, even my mother-in-law, who's 93, she doesn't get out of the house. So when they don't go out, they do not see much. But you, if you lived in this part of the world where I am, uh, you know, the, 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 the climate change is perceptible. We live it mm. every day. We've had the rains when we shouldn't be having. We had the heat when we shouldn't be having the heat. You know, the, 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 all the climate variability is so intense that one, you can't just shut eyes to it because you're experiencing it every day. But yes, the skeptics that you talk about, who are the skeptics? The skeptic, skeptics are, sorry, the people who don't want to believe that it's us who may have contributed to it. Many of the skeptics, they say, uh, yeah, maybe, you know, the climate change is happening. We don't deny it. But that's, you know what, uh, the earth is going round and this is a planetary thing. And this is more larger than humans. Like what they don't agree with is that the, it's the anthropogenic factor, 95% of the carbon emission that has increased is because of anthropogenic factor. They do not want to 
then this, the, the blame comes squarely on us. I mean, especially my generation. That's why I feel really bad when I look at the youth because I feel uh, it's my generation that did all this. You know, we thought that we have overcome, you know, age of possibility where we overcame everything. If the nature posed a, something for us, some obstacle for us, we didn't think that it was prudent to do that. But we wanted to overcome it and come up with a technology to overcome everything. So we thought we could rule over nature and we did that all for the benefit of mankind. But today we are faced with a backlash like never before. And I now laid on the shoulder of young people. You know what? You are the future stewards of environment. So you need to do this. You need to do this. But at heart, I feel very bad because I feel I have contributed to it. So I think the skepticism is because you don't, you don't want to maybe acknowledge that we had a part in it. We don't want to acknowledge that. That could be a reason. Gayatri, I'd like to take us back to the UAE now, where most of our audience is listening, basically. Um, and a lot is happening here. So plastic bags are on their way out. Uh, tote bags are very much in. We're beginning to deal with single-use plastics in a more fundamental way. It's, you know, undoubtedly getting better for sure. But um, what should we all be doing as a matter of course, as part of our daily lives? UAE has always been in the forefront, uh, you know, of, of really, you know, very proactive, I would say, in taking up causes. But the, I mean, I really feel happy. I remember in 2006, when we started holding this single-use plastic, when other countries were not even talking about it, we were talking about it. We did a lot of programs back then in 2006 as well. And now, of course, more than ever, you know, uh, I think actions are being taken, whether at the government level, whether at the uh, market level, or whether at even individual level. But one thing that I would like to say is, A, the Titanic Plastic Challenge Program that I run here in India is also run in UAE. And I remember, of course, although we have very few participants because uh, it's it's largely being directed to school children. So basically, the first step of my challenge is understand and comprehend the issue. You know, the plastic issue is not only an environmental issue. It is a social issue and it is also an economic issue. If you And, and plastic is also a global problem. So it's not that plastic is restricted to your country, you solve it, it's going to become all great. If other countries are going to put that plastic and it lands up in the sea and, uh, you know, from the sea it comes to the Gulf area, it's going to affect you as well. So we have to understand it. So it has to go beyond tokenism, if you understand what I mean, because, you know, we, we started using these paper cups, right? Uh, even the coffee shops started giving paper cups, but even the paper cups are lined with plastics a little bit. Otherwise, though, the, it will not take the fluid and the kind of clothes that we wear. If we have any synthetic clothing on us, when we wash it, you know, the microplastics are getting from our washing machine to the sea, back into the sea or to the river or to wherever. So the plastic issue and also, you know, when you go to the shopkeeper, especially in India, it's a different thing. The shopkeeper says it's cheap. I can't give me an alternative that is affordable. Give me an alternative that's not expensive and then I'll work on it. So plastic is a great thing. And I think UAE has done wonderfully. As I said, you were 
the torchbearers right back in 2006. And you've done so much more. But I would say even now, this is a more complex problem than we can even think. So yes, the start has been made, wonderful start. But still, I would say education, education, education. Understand it really deep. Gayatri, if there's one thing that you wanted to say on expanding environmental knowledge, the, the core question of this episode of Naturally Educated, if there was one thing right now that you wanted to say, what would it be? I think environmental knowledge has to be a part of a paradigm shift that has to occur all over the society. You know, most of the time we work in in a manner, I want to have my cake and eat it too. So unfortunately, environmental product, protection calls for a mindset change. It, 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 it says that you've got to think of the world in a different manner. You've got to think ecologically and not anthropogenically. We have only one planet. And that too is fast disappearing in the maze of problem that it, it has, we've got it into. So the knowledge, if I want to expand it, if you are asking me one thing that we have to do, I think, as I said, at all levels, I mean, it's not about school, it's not about college, it's about school, college, uh, adults, professionals, uh, special functional groups such as fishermen, farmer, go everywhere and then try and do a really, really Two year or a three year, I don't even know if we, I'm saying two, three years because we are fast approaching the point where we're going to exceed that 1.5 degrees very fast. So I'm just saying two or three years. Within two or three years, uh, environment education should become mandatory. And every officer in the government should get that. Uh, you know, everywhere it should happen. Only when it happens everywhere can you look for a systems change. It, uh, we say environment environment is what we call as a, you know a, we we have a simple problem we have a complex problem and we have a wicked problem so environment protection or even sustainability is a wicked problem when you feel that you have tried to reach one place and you've solved one thing by doing a b c d you realize you've just started there is so much more to go on. And that happens because we don't think in systems. So systems approach should be permeating every facet of the learning community that we have all over. And that has to happen everywhere. We have to learn to think in systems because we always think in silos and that does not solve environmental protection. I was going to say, a lot of people think of environmental responsibilities as something of a burden, as in, oh, I've got to do this thing and so on. But I want to ask you a more fundamental question, uh, which is, should environmental responsibilities be thought of as more of a moral obligation? It is moral, but if you go about saying people that you have to be moral, they don't want to be moral. Okay, um, that's the first thing that people should I say, transgress, they just move away. So that's, as we say, learning bad habit is very fast, but learning good habits take a very, very long time. So when you talk about responsibility, it is a responsibility for you and for your own children. I used to, 
address these people or do my awareness sessions in UAE. And I used to tell them, we save money for our children, but we don't need to save money. You want to build a house? Tomorrow when they grow up, they might not even like the style or architecture of your house. And they may want to build something else altogether. So we don't have to save money for it. Just teach them proper problem-solving, critical thinking skills. And that is what is going to help us. Because, I mean, it's not a question of responsibility. We don't have an option. And we don't seem to... And, you know, sometimes we say, you know what, you shouldn't talk negative. You shouldn't talk negative. We should talk positive. We should talk positive. In my opinion, the difference between, like, if you are too bright and too hopeful, that extreme hopefulness will not allow you to take proper action because you'll always be in cloud. And extreme despair also will not allow you to move or act. So we've got to go between hope and despair. We've got to put that thought in people's mind. And that's where education, the way environment education is dealt out, the pedagogical process by which education, whether for students, adults, or anybody, it goes, how do you uh, convey that environmental information is the most important thing. And, and it's not only a moral, it is a moral responsibility, I won't say it is not, but if you go around saying that, uh, well, that might not cut ice with many. Uh, it's so refreshing to hear somebody with such a realistic approach. Uh, it really is. Um, it, let me ask you this. I want to start... Uh, rounding off the episode, if you like. And I'd like your perspective on two things. We haven't mentioned in this podcast, we've been talking about this throughout the series, but I wanted to save this to the end. It's the year of sustainability here in the UAE in 2023. And it's also, of course, the run-up to COP28, the UN Climate Change Conference. That starts at the end of November. Now, from your perspective, what does it mean for the UAE to be hosting an international event like COP? It's a huge thing, of course. And in climate change terms, what do you see emerging, given your background here in the UAE, what do you see emerging from commitments the UAE has made and is continuing to make to the future? One thing I know about UAE, they're very strong on action. They're very strong on saying what they want to get done. I remember one of the tweets by Dr. Sultan Al-Jabur, um, who's the president of COP28. He wrote about certain problems that never get spoken in UNFCCC. He's very clear as to how the concrete solutions should come up. He doesn't say get, I mean, shut down the industry. He doesn't say that. He says we've got to get the industries going. We cannot afford not to have those industries. But how can we make a just transition from towards a green society, towards a green economy? How can we make that? He looks at, is very solution-oriented person. And somehow this COP28 fills me with hope. Why? One, because Dr. Sultan Al-Jabbar is the president. And of course, we have the champion, which is Her Highness uh, Razan Al-Mubarak. I mean, she is such a wonderful person because, and of course, Shama, who's, you know, handling the youth. So they, they, they are very cleverly connecting the hard action that has to go on ground, where, ground when it comes to uh, uh, 
when it comes to how do we deal with the industries, how do we deal with the just transition, the difference between uh, you know the, the the countries that need the funding and the countries that still needs to get the funding, the, all those difference, how do they tackle? They're looking at some very hard questions. That's Dr. Sultan al-Jabbar for me. And Razan al-Mubarak for me, Her Highness Razan al-Mubarak for me, personifies someone who comes from her heart. Her heart is, 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 you know, when she speaks, she's got the not only the humanity under her uh, uh, thinking, she thinks of the whole biodiversity, she thinks of the whole, you know, everything. So there she is. She's a conservationist. She's just the right person to be there. And, you know, Her Excellency Shama, you know, including youth, giving the youth the space that they need and not just as, as I keep saying, stop using youth as tokenistic thing. Oh, it's so lovely to have pictures taken with youth. Oh, it's so lovely to have. No, they are giving them a very good role and they are taking them in the decision-making process. And I have, I'm just filled with hope for the COP28 and all the best to you, UAE. And I know you can do it. If anyone can do it, you can do it. Thanks. That's very encouraging. I'm really looking forward to both of these events. I'm also looking forward to a third event happening in January of next year, 2024, which is the World Environmental Education Congress of 2024, which is uh, being held at Abu Dhabi National Exhibition Center in January. Um, and everyone's welcome to attend, get involved, and to submit papers. Uh, actually, Gayatri, you're on the organizing committee. So tell us more about the event and what will be discussed and what it is hoped will be achieved. Uh, I have been a part of the World Environment Education Congress. I mean, my journey with WEEK, as we call it, or WEC, as you want to call it, started in UAE, actually. And in 2006, I think the year when I went to the Durban WEEK WEC conference, and UAE has been, I've been representing UAE in different WEC conferences all over the world when it was held. And I'm so happy when, when we were there, we were dying to have WEC in Abu Dhabi. And now it's actually happening. So I'm all excited. And talking about WEC Abu Dhabi, I know Abu Dhabi always wants to pave the way. So it's going to, uh, the, the, the World Environment Education Congress in Abu Dhabi is going to look at where should environment education go when you, you're faced with a triple planetary crisis, when the United Nations has called for code red. Uh, you know, what as environment educators, what are we doing? Are we addressing this or are we still somewhere old in our approaches? How do we need to go ahead in this circumstance? And also, one of the most exciting things about the World Environment Education Congress in Abu Dhabi would be the youth. Youth are going to have such a strong, because who are the stakeholders for environment education? The majority stakeholder, which is youth. Youth do form a large part of the world population as well. Not to even mention UAE or even India. Everywhere they form a large part of the population. And we always seem to be talking for them. What should we do for them? But we never ask them, what do you want us to do for you? Right? And that is what Abu Dhabi conference is going to ask. They're going to make it sure that the youth are part of every part of the conference. They get their input. And I really am so hopeful that we are going to, this is going to be a trailblazing 
uh, World Environment Education Congress, and I'm sure of that. It's not only because I am in the scientific committee, but I know the way they are framing it. They, 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 they've got their heart and mind tuned together. So they're looking at the quality. The quality of the World Environment Education Congress in Abu Dhabi is going to be fantastic. And they are also looking at how, what next in environment education. So it's not about everybody coming and sharing their experiences and everything, but we are going to explore what next, what route should we take given the current crisis that we are faced with. And just one last point, the World Environment Education Congress in Abu Dhabi is straddling two conferences. So you've got the COP28, which is happening this year, and you've got the IUCN World Conference, which is on biodiversity, which is happening in 2025. So you, your, your education conference is happening in the middle. And when we talk about the triple planetary crisis, three crises, which is climate crisis, biodiversity loss, and pollution, the climate crisis and biodiversity loss is, you know, the IUCN is going to talk about all of that. So we are in a fabulous position as environment educators to show that education matters. And it's just not a mere hearsay to say education is a key vehicle to sustainability. We can actually pave the way forward. The World Environmental Education Congress is uh, biannual. It's every two years. It's in Abu Dhabi from the 29th of January next year to the 2nd of February. There's sessions, presentations, performances, field trips. If you're really lucky, you may even run into Gayatri there. Um, Gayatri, do you know what? Your your enthusiasm is so infectious. It's been so great to talk to you. <laughs> what can I say? I'm just, as I told you, my passion and my obsession is environment education. Gayatri Ragwa is an environmental education consultant. She's with the UN Environment Programme, has been a long-term resident of the UAE and is our, I guess, environmental education expert for this final episode of Naturally Educated. Plus, she's joined us all the way from high up in the Himalayas in India. Gayatri, it's been great to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Lovely pleasure for me to be here. Thanks, Gayatri. It was great to hear from you. Thank you, Abdul Rahman. Thank you so much. What a great interview. It was uh, fantastic to hear from Gayatri. It was, Abdul Rahman. Do you know what? The, there's one thing that really stands out. She said so many different things that made so much sense but it was when she said if you're not a part you are a part and I I just thought that was it it's all about mm. contributing to a greater good without wanting to sound you know preachy uh, in any way but that really struck a chord with me mm. for me it was the youth aspect of things because yes they cannot be just used as, hey, look at us. We, we talked to the youth. We gave them a, uh, you know, a panel on the side. Uh, I really love the fact that she emphasized the, you know, engaging the youth on a much deeper level. Um, and I don't know about you, Tim, but I might be considered part of the youth. So this is a plus. I'm not considered part of the youth. I, oh. I think you have a, an honorary position uh, as part <laughs> of the youth. <laughs> Do you know what? You're, you're absolutely right, though, and that really is key as well. Uh, so expanding environmental knowledge to previous, current and future generations. That's the episode today. The final episode in this season, season three of Naturally Educated, with our special guests from the United Nations, Gayatri Ragwa. A huge thank you to Gayatri uh, once again. 
That's it for this episode and this season of Naturally Educated. Just before we sign off, Abdurrahman, can you let everyone know where to find us to get in touch with the podcast? Absolutely, Tim. All right, guys, we love hearing from you as always. It really helps us to hear your thoughts on the discussions we have on Naturally Educated. So please keep on reaching out with your comments. And if you have a story to share uh, about this episode or the season in general, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Environment Abu Dhabi, one word. Uh, there's also our website, ead.gov.ae, or our YouTube channel at Environment Agency Abu Dhabi. Plus, give us a like wherever you find us and hit the subscribe button as well. Thanks for joining us for another episode and another season of Naturally Educated. I'm Tim Elliott. And I'm Abdurrahman Zabi. From everyone here on Season 3, bye for now. Goodbye, guys.